Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 7. Let me go ahead and read this for us. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of God receive their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and dive into God's word for us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for once again calling us into your house to draw near to you. And Lord, we ask you to now speak through your word, your living and active word, and open our hearts to receive it, to trust in it, and also to obey it. Uh, so send your Holy Spirit to us now and teach us uh, your word, we pray in your Son's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our, our series in the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're about to enter into a very encouraging chapter uh, in this letter. Uh, it's about uh, faith, and this chapter is what's often called the faith chapter or the hall of faith. Uh, it's not meant to be some exhaustive, like, theological treatment of the definition of faith. Uh, there are other places in the Bible that talk a lot more about faith that way, but here the purpose of bringing up various people of faith uh, from the past is meant to be an encouragement to us today. Because unlike those who had drifted away from Christ, as we have been seeing in the previous chapters, um, there are those who persevered in their faith and kept the faith. And let's consider them for a moment now. That's what the author is doing. Um, if you recall how chapter 10 ended, the author says there, we are also persevering unlike those who are drifting away. Right? You and I, the church, uh, we're here. We're still worshiping God. Regardless of your ups and downs, we're here. We're drawing near to Christ, and we're not about to go back to the, the shadowy things in the past that could not take away sins, but now we're here simply trusting in Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And that's why we enter in this house of worship with no animal sacrifices, uh, with no Levitical priest representing us. Um, there is no curtain here. Christ has brought us into the house of God, into the very presence of God. He is our high priest. He is our offering. He is a curtain torn in two. We have all that we need in Christ to draw near to God. And the author is pointing us to some of the heroes of our faith in the Old Testament who had the very same kind of faith. See, our, our passage today opens with, now faith is. Faith is. Okay, present tense, meaning faith is something living, it's something active, it's alive, it's something that we have to practice uh, today as well. So as it says in verse 4, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Okay. To who? To us. Right. Our, the faith of our forefathers speak to us, and they inspire our faith today. 
Now, notice there also something that we've been talking about now throughout the series in Hebrews, how the apostle, as he is writing to Jewish Christians, he's linking the, the faith that they have as New Testament Christians with the faith that Hebrews had in the Old Testament. Right? That's very important and noteworthy because what the author is so clearly doing here and, and really throughout the past 10 chapters in Hebrews is showing us how the Hebrew faith and our faith is the same faith. Okay? It doesn't mean that Judaism and Christianity are identical religions. It doesn't mean that. But what this means is Christ is the Messiah that Judaism has been waiting for, anticipating for all throughout the Old Testament. And so it's faith in Christ that makes the Old Testament people and the New Testament people one people saved by one Messiah, invited into one kingdom by one faith. It's worth uh, revisiting these passages that are kind of scattered throughout the Bible again as a way of review, because it's hard to get this bird's eye view of the whole Bible sometimes. So Romans 2, again, tells us that a true Jew is one inwardly, not circumcised outwardly, but inwardly, who has a new heart given to them by God, not by the letter of the law. All God's people must be circumcised in their hearts. That's how we are to be identified ultimately. And even the physical circumcision was only pointing to the spiritual one that Christ brings to us. Galatians 3 tells us that anyone who is in Christ, that person is a true offspring of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. The people of Abraham, the people of Christ are the same. They're not two, but one people. Romans 9 tells us that true Israel are not those who physically descended from Abraham, but those who have been given the promise of salvation. The promise of salvation. And those who receive it for themselves and for their household, for their children. As Peter says in in Acts, the same promise is still true for you and your children and all those who are far off. And we see this also in Hebrews 8, as we've been seeing all throughout Hebrews Everything that the old covenant had represented, everything in the temple, the animal sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, the curtain in the temple, the Holy of Holies, these were all pointing to the ministry of Christ and his new covenant, which is more excellent. And the old one is ready to vanish away now, to vanish away as the new has come and the better covenant has come. So one way to summarize all this is the people in the Old Testament who are, who are saved were saved by their faith in the Messiah who is to come. The people in the New Testament who were saved were saved by their faith in the Messiah who has come. So one people were looking forward to the Messiah by faith, and another people, and including us, were looking back on the Messiah who has come. It's the same Messiah, it's the same faith in the same gospel that invites us into the one kingdom of God. And this also explains why there are two different covenant signs now for for these two different testament periods. Uh, one before Christ and one after. The old covenant required the shedding of blood to point to the the blood of Christ that is to come. And that's why the people, through all the sacrifices that cannot forgive sins, as the author of Hebrews says, were to look forward to the one sacrifice that can forgive sins. And when Christ indeed has come and he died and the Lamb of God was offered up once and for all for His people, the shedding of blood comes to a stop. It comes to an end. No more shedding of blood is needed. This means no more animal sacrifices in the temple are needed. That's why the curtain in the temple was torn in two. 
And now the new sign of the covenant is not circumcision with bloodshed. As it says in Colossians 2, it's now baptism. Circumcision of Christ is not signified in our baptism. And the Passover meal that, was required, that always required the Passover lamb to be slaughtered no longer is needed. Now we are substituted by the Lord's Supper, as it says in Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 5. Now with the Passover lamb, the ultimate Passover lamb has come, and he's all we need, and that's why we observe him and partake of his body and blood at the Lord's table. So the author of Hebrews is laying down this giant historical bridge between the Old Testament and the New as he mentions these saints of the Old Testament as heroes of our faith. These are Christian men. Abel, Enoch, Noah. These were men of our faith, our spiritual brothers and fathers. They were believers of the gospel. And so are we. So that's why we're considering them. And we're going to consider how we practice their faith even in our day-to-day life now. Um, That's what we're going to be unpacking today, the nature of our faith and the practice of our faith, these two points. So let me spend some time talking about the nature of our faith first. If you look at verse 1, it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Okay. Now, again, this is not meant to be some exhaustive definition of faith, um, it, but it does describe to us a very important aspect of the nature of faith in a very broad sense of the word faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and convictions of things not seen. Okay. Now, in case any of you might be tempted to think this is some uh, really fundamentalistic religious thing about irrational, blind religious faith, let me, let me just explain to you why that's absolutely not what this is talking about. Uh, first of all, the word assurance here is the Greek word hypostasis. It's, it's where we get the word hypothesis. Uh, the meaning and, and the, the, what they're signifying can be similar, although they're not identical. If you break down the literal word in its origins, like the word hypothesis, it's hypo and thesis. It means standing under something. It means to be foundational, foundational. So this word is meant to convey here, there are realities underneath the material world that you cannot evidence with material evidence, but are nevertheless there and it's rational to believe in. And even in science, when you look at certain data and you posit something, the thing that you posit is not itself the evidence, right? It's a hypothesis. It's the best explanation for the evidence when you put them together. And given that science is always progressing, you can't say you have absolute certainty in it, and yet you can say it's rational to posit this. It's rational to have confidence in this. Now, if you apply this to all the non-scientific areas of our lives that are vital to us, you immediately understand how faith is similar in this sense, that it is rational for you to hold on to and have confidence in something that is unseen and yet is underneath all that is seen. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Think about the three most common and essential aspects of the human life, the relational life, the moral life, and the aesthetic life. Uh, These are areas of our lives that we engage in every second of our day by faith, by faith. Think about statements like, I love my wife with all my heart. 
or uh, generosity, self-sacrifice is morally good. The music of Johann Sebastian Bach is beautiful. None of these statements can be tested in a science lab at Georgia Tech and be proven to be absolutely true. There's no material evidence that can prove these statements to be absolutely true. Relational, moral, aesthetic facts are not like scientific facts. These are realities that are underneath the material reality. They're metaphysical. They're underneath the physical. And yet it is rational for us to believe in these things and act as if they're real. And it's actually necessary that we do that, otherwise our life would have no meaning. That's the hope that the author is saying we take hold of by faith, the assurance of things hoped for. I mean, these are things that really define how we live a hopeful, meaningful life. Love, morality, beauty. These are the things we live for. Right? Yet they are all held by faith. All that we hope for is held by faith. And all of life is, therefore, full of things that are hoped for and not seen. So as Luther, Martin Luther put it, uh, everything that is done in the world is done by hope. Everything that is done in the world is done by hope. And what is it that enables us to be assured of those things that we hope for? Faith. And the point is, it's not irrational to live by this faith in the things that we hope for. It's impossible to live without this faith. It's the key to all the things that we hope for and live for in life. And so, Naturally, if your faith is placed correctly in the right object, then your hope would be secure. But if your faith is misplaced, then your hope can be very easily lost and come under threat. So not all faith is equal. That's, that's true. You can, you can say not all faith is equal, but faith is required equally by all. Okay? Faith, not all faith is equal, but faith is equally required. So when the author says the assurance of things hoped for, you have to see it in the context of the Bible. It's not saying faith in anything, anyone. It's faith in God. That's the faith that's properly placed in something that's truly hope-giving, God and his word. And that's why he's mentioning these real people, real historical examples, who have faith not in any random thing or anyone or themselves, but in God and God's word. And the author's point is to the degree that your faith is placed in their God and the same God, that's the degree to which you will understand what, is, what does it mean to be truly relational, moral, and, and live a beautiful life in, this, in, this, in the here and now? Faith in God is the key that, that unlocks that for us. And verses 3 and 6 really uh, make this very clear for us. So take a look at verse 3. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay, so once again here, very clear. Our faith is to be placed specifically in the creator and his word. He created by the word. It's the creator and his word. And it reiterates the nature of faith, that it is not conviction of anything, assurance of anything, but about this God who created the visible universe out of things unseen. And this is something, again, rational for us to be convicted by and hold on to by faith, that God created everything out of nothing. And it's not nothing that created everything, right? Because from nothing, nothing comes. So what is infinitely more rational 
then from nothing came everything is, everything came from God, the creator of the universe. And we don't say that because it's, you know, it's a nice way of filling some, some gap with God as the explanation. No, we, we say this because it is the most rational thing to say. All of creation has a creator. That's what we're saying. And as rational as that is, you have to, you have to say that by faith, not by material evidence. Nothing can materially evidence what preceded material. Uh, up until some 40 years ago, I don't know if you knew this, you know, scientists, cos- cos- cosmologists thought along with you know, men like Carl Sagan, the universe was always here. The universe will always be here. The universe basically is eternal. And then modern cosmologists, like you know, men like Stephen Hawking, came along and refuted that. They now say the best evidence shows that the universe had a beginning. Time, space, matter began to exist out of what they called the Big Bang some 13 billion years ago. And think about what that means. Think about the, the implications of that. That means whatever began the universe, whatever caused the universe, had to be timeless, spaceless, immaterial. Because it created time, created space, and created all material things. It has to be timeless, spaceless, immaterial, and, by the way, incredibly powerful, incredibly wise. What could that be? And uh, the Bible has been saying this from Genesis 1. First of all, that the universe is not eternal, that it had a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here again in Hebrews 11, in our passage, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible, but things that are not visible. What is material, we're we're not made out of more material things. What is material had to be made out of immaterial things. This is not something we reason with evidence. It's something that we reason by faith. And it's rational for you to do so. And so that's why it says it's by faith we understand this, right? And just think about that phrase again, just how profound that is. By faith we understand. And so it's not at all what, what the, what may our, maybe our culture defines faith. Faith has to defy reasoning. Faith has to be without understanding. Faith has to be totally blind. No, faith is how we actually understand and reason about things that we actually find logical and rational. Uh, verse 6 Okay, follows this train of thought about the creator, creator God who created everything out of nothing. Verse 6 says this, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So this is where the author takes us one step further with faith. Faith is not just a helpful intellectual tool to understand the world better and to understand the origin of the world, a better way to reason about the world. No. At least that's not what he means by faith. It's not just that. That's just one byproduct of faith. More than that, faith is how we draw near to God and please him. Please him. That says so much more than figuring out what caused the universe or what's the rational basis for love and morality and beauty. This is bigger than that. We're talking about the creator of the universe and how to please him, how to have a relationship with him, that we can actually fellowship with this creator by faith. 
And it would be just worth your time the rest of the day just to ponder on this, wonder about this, that God exists and that you can draw near to him and even please him using this one incredibly powerful gift that he's given to all of us, and that's faith. This faith that allows you to see what is unseen, to hope for the things that give life meaning, this understanding that gives you a reason to have a moral, relational, and beautiful life, that faith can enter into a relationship with God, the Creator. You will probably not be able to tell me anything that's more amazing than that, that I can and I have something that enables me, empowers me to please, to please, to speak the love language of my Creator. You see, when, uh, when you spend quality time with a, with a loved one, when you're spending quality time, what your soul hears or translates that into is you're being loved, you're being cared for right now. When you witness a, a true act of generosity, right, a very selfless act, your soul translates that into this is good, this is truly moral and praiseworthy. When you listen to Bach's Yesu joy of man's desiring, what you're hearing is, this is beauty I'm experiencing. This is something transcendent. This is something true and praiseworthy as well. All of that is faith going to work. Faith translating for you something external into something that's underneath the external, something that's really true. It's all the convictions of, of, of things that are unseen. Now, what you, here's what's amazing. When you do that with God's word, when you approach God's word, whenever you open his word, you meditate on his word, you spend time worshiping God personally, what your soul hears is literally the voice of God speaking to you. And given yesterday was Reformation Day, and, and this being Reformation Sunday, it's appropriate that we remember this. One of the things that Martin Luther protested about, which makes us Protestants, is that we don't need the Pope to tell us what God is saying to us. We can simply go to the Word of God by faith and understand what God is saying to us. You can simply just sit down, open up God's Word, translate it into your language faithfully, and begin to have fellowship with Him as you hear His literal voice. And as you begin to draw near to that voice, and as you please him. How? By faith. By faith. Reading and reflecting on how the Father has established a salvation plan for his people, how the Son has accomplished that plan for his people, and how the Spirit applies that salvation to his people. And through all this meditation and reflection and remembrance, what you're hearing in your soul is God literally saying to you, that I love you, that I've chosen you, that I am still good regardless of what you're seeing around the world transpiring, and I am pleased to draw near to you. Draw near to me. So Luther says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me, and it has hands. It lays hold of me. How do you experience this? By faith by a faith that is reasonable, by a faith that understands, by a faith that sees what is unseen. And when you apply that faith to God and His Word, you have a hope that is secure.
That's the nature of faith. Faith in God and his word. A way to tap into hope. All the gifts of God. I want to remind you once again here, something we've been talking about as well, and that is it's important that you don't consider, when you think about faith, that you don't put your faith in the greatness of your faith. Your assurance will not come from your faith that's placed in your faith. How good am I at believing? How great is my faith? How quality is my, is my trust in God? You have to be more self-forgetful than that and look to God. Look to His Son. Look to His cross. That's faith. That's biblical faith. Not looking at how well I'm doing at believing, but looking at the one that you're supposed to believe in. There's your assurance. And there's your reward. It's not the goodness of your faith, but the goodness of your Savior. That's faith. That's what the Reformed doctrine of sola fide faith alone implies. The whole point of faith is to look away from yourself, to be drawn away from yourself, and to be assured in God's goodness and His power alone. Please uh, remember that. And let that invite you, therefore, to be as confessional as you can be about your weaknesses and your sins, your failures, because that doesn't hinder you from having faith. It actually might increase your faith in the one who saves sinners, in the one who reconciles sinners to God. That's the nature of our faith. Briefly now, let me just mention some specific practices that we can also draw from this passage. Practices of our faith. Uh, verse 4 begins to tell us about Abel. And it tells us that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice by faith. Meaning, Abel offered gifts to God by his faith, and therefore it was received by God. So, first point here is faith empowers us to offer to God our gifts. Whenever you offer God a gift, it's something that you do by faith. That could be your material gift, financial gift, the gift of your time, the gift of your energy, your, your emotions, gift of your goals, priorities, and your dreams. We do this by faith. We offer things to God by faith. And more than that, remember Abel offered the sacrifice that involved the shedding of blood. Right, unlike Cain, his worship was Christ-focused. So, so his offering was a reflection of what God would do for him. It's a response to that great costly gift that God would offer up for him. And so Abel would come with a costly sacrifice that would match that or reflect that in a way. And that's the kind of offering that God finds acceptable and is pleased by. That's offering by faith. That's the first thing that you can do. The practice of your faith is very much linked to your offering, your giving, your, your sacrificing, your resources for God, whatever that may look like. And then verse 5 tells us also, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. And now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Um, what was Enoch doing that pleased God? And if you go back to Genesis 5, uh, you don't see much about Enoch, but strangely, interestingly, there's this, this repeated phrase when it comes to Enoch, and that is, Enoch walked with God. It says that twice. 
in the chapter where you only get barely one sentence out of just one person's biography, it says this twice that Enoch walked with God. So we know how he pleased him, by always walking with his God. And if you have heard that before and you're wondering, okay, what, what does it mean to walk with God? Uh, I would encourage you to start with this. Start by considering what would be to not walk with God. And if you're like me, you would think, that's actually most of my life. I'm walking without God. I'm, I'm not aware of it. I'm not conscious of it. I'm not thinking about him for my day to day. I feel like I've walked through most of life without God, although he has been faithful and present in my life. But here, what Enoch is doing is he is the subject of the verb. He walked with God. Not only trusting in God to walk with him, Enoch walked with God. What am I doing to walk with God intentionally? Um, I think you can start off just by thinking about how am I walking into my career path with God, his purpose and his calling, um, to do as much as he wants me to and to stop when he wants me to stop, to not walk into any relationship without God and his guidance, his instructions, his accountability through the church, not to walk into a classroom without thinking about God and his truth and his moral values in the classroom that may not come from the classroom, but because you're walking with God, therefore you're anchored. Walking with God, what might that look like for you? And how do you do that? By faith, by faith. So you offer to God by faith, you walk with God by faith. And verse seven adds this, by faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. There's a lot here. Um, For the sake of time, let me just sum it up this way. By faith, Noah carried a reverent fear for God. He had a fear for God. And a fear that specifically led to this great obedience, this radical obedience of constructing an ark in a place where they did not see any rain. And that act of obedience saved both him and his household. His faith saved him and his house. It wasn't Noah's children's faith that brought them into the ark. It was Noah, their, their father's faith that they were inheriting and benefiting from. Noah's faith led his children to salvation. And, and get this, this is fascinating. Noah's faith also empowered him to call out the world for its sins. He wasn't afraid to condemn the world for its sins. He was courageous enough to not fall into this moral relativism. Okay, here's what I believe, but I'm just going to leave the world alone to believe whatever they want. He condemned the world. He called out its wrongs, its faults, its irrational worldview. He wasn't silent about their injustice and their wicked deeds. He wasn't timid about sin. He wasn't silent about sin. He wasn't hiding with his moral truth from God. He spoke up. And he wasn't fearful of people's rejection. And he was rejected by people, namely the world. The only people who made it to the ark was him and his family. And he was okay with that, even as he called out the sins of the world. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that was it. That's all he needed. That's faith. Faith enables you to stand up to the world, even protest the world, not to conform to the world. And this is such a powerful example of how to live in the truth of the Bible. But here's, here's the other thing. 
At the same time, this faith enabled him to invite the world to get on the ark. And this is where his truth is coupled with grace, like Christ, full of grace and truth. This is the fullness, the full picture of the Christian life, that you are not of the world, but yet you're in the world to to save the world, to seek and save the lost. Faith enables you to do that. And without faith, you will either simply go on demonizing the world, hiding in your bubble under that basket that hides your light, rather than letting your light shine into the darkness. What enables us to boldly speak truth to the world and yet do so in a loving way that draws them into God's truth? Faith by faith. A reverent fear for God and His approval not fear of man and man's approval or disapproval. All this was possible because he exercised his faith in God. And that's the thing I want to just close with. The the main point here is that these men, for them, faith wasn't something that they simply carried. It's something they practiced. Do you have faith? Good. My next question is, how are you practicing it? How are you practicing your faith? Or is your faith something that just shows up here when you're with other Christians or when you're alone at home? Great. It's great that you have faith. I'm glad that you have faith. How are you living out your faith? And this is how we become the true heir of righteousness and receive the approval of God. Not with a faith that is dead, paralyzed, immobile, inactive, passive. Faith that is active, faith that is practiced, faith that goes out with God's grace in one hand and truth in the other hand. These are ordinary men. Normal people like you and me. But what led to these incredible testimonies in their lives is simply their exercising of their faith. What might happen in your life if you were to actually begin not sitting on your faith, but practicing your faith? What could change for you? If you're here today, you're not a Christian, I hope that um, you're not turned off by Christianity because you're, you're simply looking at Christians who don't practice their faith. We're turned off by them too. Okay? We're turned off by so-called Christians who don't practice their faith. I want to encourage you to look to Christians who actually practice it, who actually practice their faith. Be impressed by those who bring their faith to bear in this real life. Those who truly confess their sins and their weaknesses publicly, those who truly turn the other cheek, those who truly are out there seeking and saving the lost, those who are truly hospitable to tax collectors and sinners, whoever that might be in our culture, those who are truly becoming all things to all people so that they might save some, those who are truly loving their enemies, not loving those who love them back, but loving those who don't love them back in any way, those who love the way Jesus loved. Be impressed by those Christians. And those are these ordinary saints of old who offered their gifts to God, who walked with God, who discipled their household, who stood up against the world while not giving up on saving them. 
For those of us who are, who claim to be Christians, that's, there, there's our example, and that's what we ought to be living out. And the, the amazing, amazing truth in all this is that we have this faith. We have been given this faith. So let's practice it. Let's make it visible in the here and now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your encouragement by pointing our attention to our brothers and fathers of the faith who lived during a time that is much, much more dangerous, risky, tumultuous than our time now. This is comfortable compared to what they had lived through, what they had suffered, what they had obeyed and therefore lost in this life. Lord, give us faith, a faith that is living and active, a faith that is visible, that makes your invisible kingdom more and more felt and tangible here on this side of heaven until your kingdom comes, until you restore all things, until you make all things good. May we be uh, your salt and light uh, visible to the world and may, may people see us, our good deeds, and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We pray that this would be true during this season when uh, there's, there are a lot of troubled hearts out there, uh, a lot of anxious hearts. May we be the source of their comfort and encouragement and the voice of truth. Uh, give us courage to do so. Give us wisdom to do so. And most of all, give us love uh, to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.